1: Hi, I'm Chris Morgan. You're listening to The Wild on KUOW. I'm a wildlife ecologist and host of The Wild. I hope you're having a great weekend so far and maybe getting out in nature. Last week, we asked you all to send me some of your wildlife encounter stories. Thanks if you wrote in. Here's a couple of them I wanted to share. We got an email from Barb in Seattle. She says she had an encounter years ago. She was a a bridge tender, a person who operates and maintains bridges in Florida at the time, and she's still doing that now. And she's on the bridge, checking out the navigation lights when she hears the sound of a blue heron. Like, quack, quack. And she's heard that sound loads of times. But then a third round of squawking happened. Barb was then struck with a jet stream of water. Turns out it wasn't a heron, it was a dolphin. Barb did some digging and learned a real gem of information. Dolphins are renowned vocal mimics. This one had learned how to sound like a heron. Amazing. Thanks, Bob, for sharing that one. Here's another email. Reinhardt writes that he was camping with his wife and two dogs in the Canadian Rockies. And one morning, their two dogs start going off. They're trembling and barking at something right outside the tent. And he says, my wife says, look outside, see what's there. Oh, very brave. (laughs) See what's outside the tent. So he pops his head out of the tent. Camera and bear spray, he says to his wife. There's a massive black bear next to the tent. He doesn't get the prettiest pictures. But if he had, he might have realised that he was really taking a picture of a 700-pound grizzly bear. A couple of park rangers filled him in later on that day on a grizzly bear that loves to rummage through the bushes around the campsite for berries. That grizzly visited them almost every day of their camping trip, took a seat, took a few sniffs, and then wandered off. I love this, Reynard. Thank you for sharing it, because... All we ever seem to hear are the headlines about bear attacks and negative encounters. We never really hear headlines about peaceful interactions with people. Just there to feed on huckleberries, this grizzly bear was. So keep them coming, folks. It's great to hear your stories. You can email them to us at thewild at Okay, let's talk about today. We're heading to the water twice this hour. And first up, beavers. I've got to say, brace yourselves for a string of surprising facts and stories about these unlikely heroes. This is one of our most popular episodes of the wild. And it's timely too, you know, we like to be topical. About now, in the fall, beavers are caching food for the winter. They jam branches into the mud under the water to eat over the winter, even when the pond is frozen solid like a lovely winter larder. So they're very busy right now. You can see the wood chips around the forest. There's something really cool about finding them when you're poking around in the, in the woods or by a wetland. Little cookie cutter sized chips with these straight teeth marks across them from a fresh chew. The beaver's teeth wear down more easily on the back surface than on the front surface. So as they bite down with that beaver overbite, they sharpen their teeth. I think it's really tantalizing to know they're there gnawing away and at the same time making an ecosystem for other creatures. We start this episode in a city park in Seattle. It's so beautiful. It's like a a mini white Lincoln log or a large Lincoln log I guess just floating in the middle of the pond. Completely stripped of bark so it looks white and then these fresh marks, That looks pretty fresh doesn't it?
2: Yeah, it looks really
1: fresh. I'm standing in a pond in Magnuson Park in Seattle, holding a small log. The leftovers from somebody's lunch. That somebody is a creature that's almost comically cute. When I asked my friends what comes to mind when they think of a beaver, they all smiled. Buck-toothed mascots, Bucky the beaver, leave it to beaver, Justin beaver, whatever that means. I love the Far Side cartoon of a beaver. He's standing in front of his fridge with his hands on his hips, and the only thing in the fridge is wood and twigs. But there is far more to this little creature than just a pop culture caricature. The mighty beaver has altered landscapes, affected economies, and even changed the history of the world. And this is their story. The reason I've come to Magnuson Park is to see beavers in action. I meet up with Ben Ditbrenner. Ben? Chris. Hey, Chris. Nice to meet you. Good to meet you too. Yeah. Caught me getting tied up in knots with my waders here. Beavers have come back to this city park over the last few years. Now, I've been around beavers in some wild, out-of-the-way places, but these urban, street-smart beavers are a different matter. I want to know more about them in this unlikely place. So we've got to be prepared to get wet. Can't help but already feel inadequate, you know? Like the beavers are out there in this freezing cold water without waders on. (laughs) What's my problem? Ben is working on his PhD at the University of Washington and is also the executive director of Beavers Northwest. He tells me city planners created what were supposed to be a few ephemeral wetlands at Magnuson Park to help support some wildlife. The idea was that they would provide wet habitat in the spring and then dry up in the summer. But the beavers had a different plan.
2: Um, And then about five years ago, beavers moved in from Lake Washington. They had been all over Lake Washington, and um, as soon as permanent water was really established here, they found it pretty quickly.
1: The beavers moved in and started building dams, which is what beavers do. You see, beavers can't stand the sound of running water. It drives them crazy and they have to stop it. It's a nagging innate thing because that sound of trickling water spells failure for their engineering efforts. It's something that they have to fix.
2: People have done some really cool studies where they've even taken a radio with the sound of running water and put it in a field, and Beaver will come out and build a, a little circular dam over the top of, of the radio. No. So they are really motivated no. by that sound of running
1: water. It's amazing. I want to do that today. (laughs) It's like beaver OCD. They can't help themselves. It reminds me of that beaver from Disney's Lady and the Tramp.
3: Do you realise every second 70 centimetres of water is wasted over that spillway? Yeah, but gotta get this log moving, sonny. Gotta get it moving.
1: And I saw that obsession firsthand. Ben shows us a drain in the middle of a pond. The drain makes sure that the road that's nearby doesn't get flooded out. The park manager put a fence around that drain to keep the beavers off of it, like that would actually stop them. There's a a fence around a drain that drains water out of the pond that we're standing in right here, and the sound of that draining forced the beavers to come and fix it, and they couldn't get into the fence to fix it, so they've built all around this fence, and it's thick with this silty mud here. Reeds and grasses and... Whoa! <laughs> Almost went then. It is an amazing accomplishment. We wade through the water, picking our way through the vegetation and mud. When I mean, you're looking across at this pond, and it, and it very much feels like a naturally created pond. It doesn't feel like we're in a, a man-made park in Seattle, you know, and that's because the beavers have created this pond, and it's full of wildlife, it's full of... the ducks all over it, you know. You can imagine in the summer, in the spring, it must be packed with insects and songbirds and all part of the, the ecosystem these guys are creating. We get to the main dam, the heart of the operation. We're standing on this, what looks like a big muddy mound, but there's a slide that goes across it from the pond to my right that's higher than the pond to the left. And the beaver has got this slide which is basically a little beaver highway going from one pond to another to help him maintain this. And, and it's worn away the mud, so you can see all these different layers of, of sticks underneath it um, that are exposed. Then it looks like a dam. You can see that there's a construction under this muddy mound. It's, it's, it's amazing. So Chris, if
2: you look at the way that the beavers have positioned the logs on this dam, you can see they kind of would do it differently than how we would do it. So we probably, if we were going to come out for the day and be beavers and build a dam, we would probably take these sticks and put them on the channel perpendicular to the flow. But beavers don't do that. They're approaching it a little bit differently. They're taking the sticks and they're pushing them into the mud so that they're facing upstream. And even as the sticks get old and brittle, the force of the water and the mud just further pushes those sticks down into the, to the substrate and it makes the dam even potentially stronger.
1: Picture yourself standing by a creek or a small river flowing through a, a forest or a glade of trees. You see a pretty view But the beaver sees an opportunity. The beaver needs that pond. It's where he builds his lodge, where where the whole beaver family lives in fact. So he builds the lodge in the pond where it's safe from predators. And the pond also allows him to swim, They're, they're way better in the water than they are on land. So that way they can swim away from predators and also towards food. The trees and the shrubs that are now in and around the water in the flooded area. It becomes a pantry, right on his watery doorstep. When the beaver runs out of trees in his immediate pantry, then he starts to dig channels, literally like excavating them out of the ground, like fingers of water that extend from the pond so that he can swim to to new forage further out from the main pond. He'll even float logs and sticks down those channels, and, and this is pretty cool, some of them to eat and some of them to reinforce the dam, and then some of them to pile on top of the lodge to shore it up. So these three components, the dam, the lodge, and, and the channels, are the beaver's world. And it's really interesting to look for all three of those features when you're out there near a beaver pond. It, it sort of brings it all together and makes total sense. The primary
2: motivations of the beavers are to be safe and to have sufficient food. So they're building those dams and, and increasing the pond area to, to achieve both of those goals.
1: The beavers pretty much took over this part of the park and, and have changed the hydrology of this entire site. The ephemeral ponds became permanent.
2: And park planners have been really open-minded about the changes that they've been seeing and instead of trying to trap the beavers out and actively fight them, they've been working with the beavers and adapting to what the beavers have been doing. So it's it's a really cool kind of story of how people and beavers are working kind of together to try to find uh, some middle ground that works for nature and for the needs of the park and and everyone else it's like the beavers are on the planning committee right they're
1: part of the process that's (laughs) all.
2: yeah i think that they put themselves in the planning committee and uh, people realize there's no way they get those beavers off the planning committee
1: now if you can't beat them join them kind of thing yeah exactly it is a little bit that way hey sounds like yeah but beavers are not always welcomed by everyone Because as much as they create habitat, they can disrupt it, too, for humans. They can flood agricultural land by damming, which isn't good. Or, on the other extreme, they can deprive land of water by blocking the flow of that water. It's complicated. But there are still a lot of people who are pretty passionate about beavers. Like Ben Goldfarb.
0: There's so much to say about sniffing beaver butts, it's really kind of (laughs) remarkable.
1: Ben is an environmental reporter and author of the book, Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. And before you jump to conclusions about Ben's enthusiasm over beaver butts, a little context here. It's impossible to look at a beaver and know what sex it is. They have internal genitalia. Makes sense, swimming between all those snags. So researchers determine the sex of a beaver not by sight, but by smell.
0: What you can do is is basically find the the anal gland, uh, one of the scent organs, and you know squirt out a, a bit of scent secretion and sniff it. And if it smells like motor oil, uh, it's a male. And if it smells like old cheese, uh, it's a female. So that's that's how you that's how you sex a beaver. Hopefully, you never have the opportunity. But if you do, now you now you know. It is good
1: to know these things. I don't know how I would have coped without it. You know, thanks for that background. <laughs> I love that. That's that's
0: news news you can use.
1: So their anal gland is called the castor sac, and the liquidy substance it secretes is called castorium. It's even featured in their scientific name, Castor canadensis.
0: It's, it's this, this very strong smelling, kind of musky, uh, but with hints of vanilla. It's a very unusual aroma, mm. um, and for a long time, castorium was actually used as a as a flavor additive uh, in things like like. Fruit sodas and vanilla ice cream. Uh, it's still used to this day in, in some perfumes. Uh, it's a it's a pretty a pretty unique scent.
1: I'm um, never eating vanilla ice cream again in my life. But Ben's real fascination with beavers comes from their incredible ecological contributions.
0: We think about them as being kind of these these fun little rodents, uh, and don't always give them credit for being these incredibly dramatic ecosystem engineers and architects.
1: But these unlikely ecosystem engineers are benefiting way more than just themselves with all this busy behaviour. Other species benefit too.
0: Even though they're expanding their own habitat, they're also inadvertently creating habitat for all of these other creatures as well, right? We know that, you know, on this planet, water is life, and there are so many animals from... You know, ducks to frogs to fish to moose uh, that are dependent on the kinds of wet habitats that beavers are creating. So they're, they're building their own shelter, but in the process they're creating shelter for this vast ecosystem as well.
1: Goldfarb goes into this in his book. He argues that this kind of habitat engineering is what makes beavers a keystone species. To understand the importance of a keystone species, picture a, a stone arch. The keystone is the block at the top of the arch that holds the entire arch together. And if you take out that block, the whole arch comes crashing to the ground.
0: And a keystone species plays a similar role in an ecosystem. And beavers are playing that same role as well. They're they're also a species without which ecosystems collapse because again they're, they're building all of this wet habitat for literally thousands of different species uh, that are, are depending on them for you know for, for ponds and wetlands and wet meadows um, so that's that's what a keystone species is a species that disproportionately holds up an ecosystem and the, to me there's no question that beavers are doing that
1: Beavers create a, a nourishing wetland system that help all kinds of species, from songbirds to mink to otters. They even help orcas. Their ponds are really good habitat for young salmon. Salmon that eventually find their way down into the sea, and some of them into the mouths of orcas. Ben Goldfarb says you could consider beavers unlikely heroes.
0: Aside from humans, they're really, in many ways, you know, our our continent's most influential animal. And, you know, again, they're these kind of chunky balls of of fat and fur, but they're doing a lot of work.
1: And, And this had been happening for thousands of years, like a natural system that worked very well with the beaver at the heart of it. Native Americans knew this long ago. They called the beaver the sacred center of the earth because of their role in making habitat for other animals and plants. But then we arrived, Europeans, and we wanted beavers in a bad way. I'll tell you why after the break.
0: Hey, my name's Claire McGrain and I'm a producer for Seattle Now, KUOW's local news podcast. There is a lot happening in our region, and it's a lot of work to keep track of it all. We'll get you caught up on the latest news and take a deep dive into something happening around the city all in under 15 minutes. Get a morning walk-in or grab a cup of coffee and start your day with us. Learn something new and connect with our city by searching for Seattle Now wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This second part of the story talks about beaver hunting, how they became a massive commodity around the world. But thankfully, times have changed. Fast forward to today, and I just heard that a baby beaver was born in the wild in London for the first time in 400 years. It's yet to be announced if it's a female or male. If you're listening to our episode, you'll understand why. Anyway, what fantastic news. I see headlines about beavers all the time these days, how they're being encouraged back in various parts of the world. Some covert conservationists are even doing it illegally, sort of dropping them off by a creek in the dead of the night. And it's because these creatures can help us solve so many issues like water storage, climate, habitat restoration, rewilding. I was deep up in the mountains in the North Cascades last weekend uh, tracking wolves and I stopped for lunch at a creek And I could see where that creek began, up in the ice of the glaciers, way up high. So I sat there, staring at that water, thinking, it's going to run out. When that ice and that snow is gone, it will. It'll run out. That creek will run dry. But it also made me think about beavers, who can help. They can help us store the water as it tumbles down from the mountain. Okay. Back to the story. What did make beavers so popular way back when? Hats. Beaver hats were the hot fashion item in the 16th to 18th century in Europe. High society, monocles, a kind of a status symbol.
0: Kind of take the the under fur of the beaver and felt it up and it turns into this really durable, pliable, waterproof material that was sort of the finest hat-making stuff.
1: Beavers had almost been hunted to extinction in Europe to feed that hat trade, and America had a plethora of them. So much so that beaver pelts became an economic driver for early settlers here. Pilgrims had to pay back debt to those who had funded their journey to America, and they did it by trapping beavers and selling their pelts. Pelts made the Massachusetts Bay Colony financially solvent. Then there was the beaver's role in politics. Yes, politics.
0: The Revolutionary War, one of the things that the, the British did to anger the American colonists was deny them access to beaver trapping grounds west of the Appalachians. You know, so beavers played a, a role in the American Revolution.
1: The Louisiana Purchase, westward expansion. The market for beaver fur was a factor in all these decisions. These creatures were helping to shape history, all while being slowly annihilated.
0: These animals are just so integral to uh, our, our own story as a nation.
1: Amazingly so, yes. And incredible to think that so much of it began with a, a, a hat fad in many ways. Hey? That's, uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's, it's an insane thought that we could have such an impact on a species because of a fashion item
0: yeah I know it's it's true, but, you know, but then you think I mean that's kind of the story of our relationship with wildlife in so many ways. you know we, mm-hmm. we wiped out bison in part because you know we wanted to use their furs as robes and and you know we eliminated you know th- i mean untold billions of of uh, of songbirds because you know we used their plumage in hats you know it's it's amazing the extent to which fashion has basically driven our relationship with the environment for centuries:
1: The greed and ignorance of humans. Before Europeans arrived in North America in the 1600s, best estimates put the beaver population at 400 million. That's a lot of hats. That's more than the number of people in the USA and Canada today. But by 1900 or so, after a massive continent-wide trapping effort, there were only 100,000 left. And in Europe, they were down to around 1,200 beavers in the wild. The loss of these animals has literally changed the geography of North America.
0: My own view of what a stream should look like was in many ways inaccurate because I, I too, had omitted beavers from this historic picture. You know, you read read old explorers and trappers' accounts of crossing North America before all the beavers were eliminated. And, you know, places that today we associate with desert, like much of New Mexico and and eastern Wyoming, uh, you know, there, explorers encountered marshes and wetlands and ponds, and, and a lot of that was beaver influence.
1: This is an animal that can make a desert into a wetland. It's incredible to think that North America's landscape used to actually look and feel different because of beavers. So much so that even today, we don't understand what a river actually is supposed to look like. But over the last century, beaver numbers have started to spring back. People started to understand that beavers improved biodiversity and and the health of habitats and probably shouldn't be blindly exterminated everywhere. And as often happens when an animal population comes back, there were growing pains with the surrounding human community. These types of conflicts played out in a very unique way in Idaho in 1948.
3: This man is carrying beaver live traps.
1: Beaver populations were increasing and causing problems with local irrigation systems and orchards.
3: He is on his way to a beaver pond, where he will remove the busy engineers who have become too numerous.
1: The state's Department of Fish and Wildlife wanted to eliminate these human beaver conflicts.
0: So basically, decided to live trap a bunch of a bunch of beavers and relocate them uh, to the to the wilderness, which was you know a really a really nice idea.
3: Live beaver for new waters.
0: The initial challenge was that they, they tried to move the beavers on horseback, but the
1: beavers spooked the horses and made them hard to manage.
0: You know you can't really blame the horses for not uh, being a big fan of having you know beavers strapped to their back.
1: So transporting the beavers on horseback wasn't going to work. So how are these biologists going to translocate these beavers into the backwoods of Idaho? Well, this was just after the end of World War II, and somebody gets an idea.
0: There are all of these surplus parachutes on hand. Uh, They've got some airplanes, so, you know, why not try uh, tossing beavers out of airplanes?
1: Uh, Oh, you can't make this stuff up. That's just insane.
0: (laughs) If it's, it's not all just <laughs> plan B, parachutes, anybody?
3: Parachutes are attached to cargo lines, nearly ready for that flight back into the mountain.
0: This one biologist, this guy named Elmo Heater, uh, designed this, this special crate that you could strap to a parachute and, and then the crate would fall open upon impact.
3: And the boxes are stacked in rows along the waist of the plane. Ten boxes to a load, 20 beaver ready for the flight to Mountain Meadows.
0: So that year, in 1948, they they dropped 76 beavers out of airplanes uh, in these specially designed crates attached to parachutes. The
3: plane makes a careful approach, ready for the drop. Now into the air and down they swing, down to the ground near a stream or a lake.
1: (laughs) Unfortunately, one little beaver somehow got out of the crate midair and fell to his death. But 75 of the 76 beavers survived to go on to start a family in the wilds of Idaho away from any
0: conflict with humans.
3: The box opens, and a most unusual and novel trip ends for Mr Beaver.
0: The really remarkable thing was that when they, when they flew over those same areas the next year, they found that beavers had actually built dams and, and lodges in all of the places they'd been dropped off. So the beavers not only survived the initial landing, they actually uh, built, built dams and flourished.
1: Today, there are about 15 million beavers in North America.
0: So from that perspective, it's, it's certainly a, a wonderful story of, of recovery and conservation. Mm-hmm. But then you consider the fact that historically there were likely several hundred million. Uh, and, you know, you realize that we still have an awfully long way to go when it comes to returning this species to many of the places that it was eliminated from.
1: But it is an amazing start. And, and even in Europe, where the whole problem began, you know, with, with their hat fetish. Well, even there, there are now half a million beavers, thanks to some really effective conservation efforts. <laughs> Today, beavers are being looked at as a way to help us deal with one of the greatest challenges we face on the planet. Climate change. That's because it's all about water.
0: You know, as, as we lose that snowpack, as, as precipitation falls as rain rather than snow, it becomes really important that we figure out new strategies to capture some of that water, to hold water up in the up in the mountains, up in the high country. And you know, hey, here's this this nifty little rodent, capable of creating thousands and thousands of reservoirs uh, up in the mountains to keep that water on the landscape and keep our our streams and rivers hydrated into the the summer and fall as it gets hot. So I think that idea that beavers could be a water storage solution and help us adapt to climate change is a really big reason why there's so much interest in these animals right now.
1: Ben Goldfarb says that these reservoirs also create fire breaks on the landscape that that help slow wildfires, and we know how bad those have been in recent
0: years. You know, you can actually, in many cases, achieve achieve a lot more, and certainly do it much more cost effectively by letting the rodent do the work, as uh, as, as many beaver scientists say. Uh, you know, basically getting out of the way. Relocating or, or, you know, restoring these these animals somehow, and essentially letting them build their dams, create ponds and wetlands, store water, make amazing wildlife habitat, improve water quality. You know, they do all of these wonderful things if we basically stay out of their way, don't kill them, and uh, <laughs> you know, and, and take steps to help them recover. So to me, that's that's the lesson. Is is more than anything else. You know, we we humans are are so. Infatuated with our own godlike powers, uh, but here's a case where we can actually make more progress by turning restoration over to another species.
1: Back at Magnuson Park, standing knee deep in the pond with the other Ben, Ben Ditbrenner, I have a new respect for the beaver. The landscape of this urban park that they have helped build is teeming with wildlife.
2: In these wetland systems, we see herons and we see uh, all types of of shorebirds and then in the surrounding areas we see a huge diversity of songbirds and when we look at wildlife cameras footage at night we see that the area is teeming with uh, mammals like mink and otter and all types of uh, just a huge diversity of, of mammals.
1: Ben Ditbrenner says beavers are a great investment for the future. Our allies in so many ways.
2: And they're free uh, if we had to come in here and try to replicate what beavers were doing, it would be $100,000 easily. But well, we, beavers come into the system, and they do this for free. And when we have big storm events and the dams blow out, if we were in charge, probably would never get around to fixing those dams. But the beavers come back out the next day and start rebuilding.
1: They start rebuilding. Rebuilding nature. Putting back the pieces. It's an amazing thought. We may never have 400 million beavers back in North America and and frankly, there isn't room for that many of them these days. But I do like the idea of just getting out of their way and having some parts of the old place just the way they are supposed to be. Beavers on the planning committee of planet Earth. Just hold the vanilla ice cream, please. Okay, next as promised, it's time to disappear into the watery world of the sea lion. A bit of behind the scenes. The wild team and I were really grappling with this story when we produced it. Something was off. I, I don't know. It was it was missing something. Didn't feel different enough. And then I said, "Wait, I know. Let's try and tell the story from the sea lion's perspective." I love trying to get into the minds of animals to see things through their eyes. So, we did. A couple of years ago I played this story to a small group of people on a ship up in the Arctic. I had them all lying down on their backs on the deck really quietly to focus on being underwater like a sea lion. It was great. People really enjoyed it. A bit of underwater animal meditation. But as you'll hear it's not all roses for a sea lion. They live in a complex, natural world and have to make a living. Then you add humans into the mix and things become even more tricky for them, including conflicts. Part of the story is about dropping explosives into the river. You'll hear some of that in this episode. This is a protected species, the sea lion, chasing down an endangered species, the Chinook salmon. Our story conveys some of these complexities. It's an ongoing journey, how to manage the various needs, but thankfully, a lot of very smart people are trying. So it might be your only chance in life to stop what you're doing for 15 minutes if you can, maybe even close your eyes, and become a sea lion. Picture yourself in an underwater world. The world of the sea lion on the west coast of North America, where an ecological puzzle has become unexpectedly complicated. This is a story of oceans, rivers, salmon, and survival. It's also a story of bombs, guns, and billion-dollar infrastructures. It's a story that's been told before, But not like this because this is an opportunity to take to the water and channel your inner sea lion to find out just what it takes to maneuver in an ever-changing aquatic world when everyone wants a piece of the prize imagine you're a sea lion you're a 900 pound male california sea lion at sea you're entering the prime of life five years old eight feet long bold and brave but a little naive the sea is your complete comfort zone. You've been out here, at sea, for six straight days, away from land. And you're hungry. You might even be a bit irritable. Cruising through the green kelp, twisting and turning like underwater flight, you follow your nose, whiskers feeling their way. You swim through a dense shoal of smelt. The little fish are easy to catch, so you grab two of them and guzzle them down. They ease the hunger a little bit, for now. A few days ago, you were in the place of your birth, way down south, the Channel Islands of California near Los Angeles. You were there to breed. And this year, you hit your stride as an emerging dominant male. You sired eight pups from as many females. But that was all a thousand miles ago. And now, instinct and your big brain and your youthful curiosity have driven you north, way north, on a migration. Occasionally, you travel with other males heading north. To the coastal waters of Washington, Canada, and even Alaska. You're fast and sleek, a powerful predator. But you're also prey. Your flank has scars across it from the time you got away from the teeth of an orca last year. But nothing will stop you from finding what drives you. Food. Quite suddenly, something changes. The taste of the water is different. It's turned from salty to fresh. This is the mouth of the Columbia River. It's three miles wide right here where the river spills into the Pacific Ocean between the states of Oregon and Washington. Whoosh, a giant silver fish flashes past your face. Whoa, it startled you. And without even thinking, you bank right and paddle after the fish with a thrust of your enormous flippers. You've now entered a different ecosystem, and as a sea creature, it's a place you know nothing about. You have no idea what's ahead on this river. No other river pours more water into the Pacific from the North American continent than the Columbia River. Other giant rivers, themselves legendary, pour into the Columbia. And it's here that a strange chase begins. The giant silver fish you are chasing is a Chinook salmon, 50 pounds of determined muscle no wonder they call them kings and this is where your plans to head north change you're sleek your body drives through the water after the fish you're a perfectly tuned underwater version of the sea lion most humans don't ever see if anyone can catch that fish you can but it's not easy It's a race that's evolved over millions of years. And the salmon is as good at escaping as you are at chasing. Even at 25 miles an hour. It's an evolutionary arms race. The Chinook is the largest salmon in the Pacific. Their meat is packed with 30,000 delicious calories. And they're on a mission too. This female salmon, whose tail you're on. She's been at sea for four years. But her life started in the river as an egg in a small tributary of the Columbia River up in the mountains. Then, as a 12-inch yearling, she swam down this very same river towards the sea. Four years at sea have toughened her, but now she's back in fresh water, and it's the beginning of the end of a really long journey for her. She's heading home, back to her birthplace in that mountain stream. She has a fight on her hands to get there, though. You find the taste of the fresh water strange. But other than that, this still feels as big as the sea here. It doesn't feel like a river at all. But it doesn't even matter. You're just following the food, and the food is heading upriver, away from the sea and everything you know. You push on against the steady flow of the river, and it feels unusual to you. It's different to the tides you're used to. You sense it's worth it. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. When Lewis and Clark were here in 1805, 35 sea lion generations ago, they saw a river very different to today's. Native American people were living from the riches of the water and the land, people that gave the mighty Chinook salmon its name. The place was throbbing with life back then, beavers making ponds, bears eating berries, huge flocks of birds, wolves chasing elk. In the 1800s, over 10 million salmon would return to the Columbia River. It's closer to 2 million today. Because of habitat loss and lower water quality, a warming climate. And to make matters worse, fewer fish have to feed more hungry mouths, including the sea lions, whose numbers are actually up. Protection in the 70s worked for the sea lions. So now we have a protected species, the sea lion, chasing an endangered one, the salmon. Your race for the salmon continues up the river. Through the surface of the water, you see buildings on the shore. Always curious, you pop your head up for a look. There's a wooden dock and it's packed with sea lions. There must be a hundred or more of them. They're piled two or even three deep in places. They're a social bunch. And there are more now than there ever have been. You haul out and join them. Time for a rest, conserve some energy. But most of these guys won't be as ambitious as you. You were born with extra drive and extra strength. About 1,600 sea lions have entered the river, but only one in 10 of you will push onwards a long way onwards. Smell guides the salmon. She's stopped eating since she hit the fresh water. She's carrying 15,000 eggs, and her only remaining task in life is to lay them in the tributary she was born. The male salmon are on the same journey to fertilize them. So her 100% focus is making it there, home, which is 200 miles upstream. A journey that will take her about 18 days. The trundle of logging trucks vibrates through the water. You can feel it in your long whiskers. You're now in really unfamiliar territory. Human dwellings are everywhere and they seem very close. Voices carry across the water. The river becomes narrower now. You're 50 miles from the coast. A huge Chinook zips by, and right on its tail, a massive sea lion, twice your size. It's a stellar sea lion, an intimidating 2,000 pounds. You keep swimming, following the salmon, 70 miles upriver, 80, 90 miles, and past 100. You're feeling quite alone. You've not seen another sea lion for a while, and you wonder if you'll ever catch a fish. The ocean is a long way behind now. The water is murky, thick with silt. 140 miles upstream, and you start to hear a strange, distant rumble. It vibrates the entire river, and it's getting louder. A shadow in the sky, a bald eagle suddenly swoops down overhead, scattering a dozen noisy gulls that are hovering above. They found salmon remains in the water. Then suddenly, there's mayhem. It's like the water has turned into a bubbling cauldron. The salmon in front of you is totally disoriented in the frothy white water. You lunge hard at the fish with a huge push of your giant flippers, but you miss. Another sea lion speeds in from nowhere, darts past you and grabs the fish. More salmon zip past, and two other sea lions. For every salmon, there are several sea lions now. All hell has broken loose. Then, through the murky water, You see something white ahead. As you swim closer, it gets bigger and bigger. Suddenly, the river stops, and you can't go any further. A wall. A wall has trapped the fish. A lot of fish, and they're easy prey now. And it's game on. Suddenly, life is good. The wall is a dam, Bonneville Dam. It was built in the 1930s during the Great Depression at a cost of $83 million. That's about $1.5 billion today. And the Bonneville Dam, it didn't just bring electricity, it also brought hope, partly in the form of thousands of jobs to fuel a nation that was thirsty for good news and growth. A rise of human willpower and ability, conquering nature, and even holding back water including a man-made lake, a 50-mile-long reservoir, taming this mighty river. But it's also become the focal point for a struggle for survival involving humans, salmon, and you, the sea lion. As you chase another cornered fish, you begin to surface out of the water. You see the white concrete wall rise to the sky, 200 feet high and 1,000 feet wide. And that's when you hear it. A huge explosion booms through the water and shakes every fiber of your sea lion body. The fish scatter. You're dazed and terrified. You've never felt anything like this before. In a panic, you swim to the surface to figure out what's happening. Then you see a boat, a boat full of humans. For the last 146 miles, You've been chasing salmon. But the tables have turned. Now you're the one being chased. And the men on the boat want you out of here. And if that takes underwater explosives and shotgun bangers, then that's what'll happen. These Native American men are the defenders of the Chinook. They're lifeblood. If these fish don't make it upstream, then their ancient cycle is over. Scaring away sea lions like this is illegal. Some of the more troublesome ones are even euthanized, and Native Americans depend on the salmon they have for thousands of years. But the dam has thrown the ecosystem out of whack. For salmon to get past the dam, they have to swim up a series of man-made, elevated water pools, a fish ladder. But first, they have to survive the gauntlet of hungry sea lions, up to 300 of them during spring that have learned to catch the salmon at the base of the dam. In spring, the sea lions can eat around 20 to 40% of the Chinook here. Future generations of salmon are under threat. And Native Americans are doing what they can to protect the salmon and this ancient cycle. And it's not just people who depend on these fish, but countless other species too, from orcas to bears. What's most surprising is that the salmon are still here at all. The odds are against them from the moment they're born. But some do make it to the stream of their birth, where they will lay their eggs and die, her body returning nutrients to the water and the forests. With some luck, her offspring will then head downriver, ocean-bound, for the ancient cycle to begin all over again. An ancient cycle in a modern human world, and a new kind of normal, a normal where sometimes the pieces of the puzzle don't quite fit like they used to. And where nobody is really the winner. It's been an experience for you, the sea lion, but the explosions are all too much, and you retreat from the dam. But at least you caught two salmon, and not only that, you learned a lot along the way. But the salt water is calling you back, and eventually home to California all those miles away. This is what you do. You survive and learn. And you'll most likely be back here next year, playing your role in an ecological puzzle and the complicated path of the Chinook. that's our episode for this week thank you for tuning in i'm really enjoying bringing some of our favorite episodes along with some updates and some stories from you too you can find more episodes of our podcast the wild with chris morgan at kuw.org, apple podcasts spotify or yes wherever you get your podcasts we promise to take you to wondrous places to meet really fascinating wild animals and people with stories you'll hopefully want to tell your friends the Wild is a production of KORW in Seattle and me, Chris Morgan, with support from Wildlife Media. Our producers are Matt Martin and Lucy Suchek. Jim Gates is our editor. This broadcast version is produced by Brandy Fulwood. A very special thank you for their kind financial support to Jill and Scott Walker, Rose Letwin, Ellen Ferguson, Anna Kimball, John Taylor, Paul Lister, Bob Yellowlees, Barbara Stallman, Julian John Hanson, and Annie Mies Our production team includes Paul Bikis, Juan Pablo Chiquiza, April Craig, Michaela Gianotti-Boyle, Tatiana Latre, Cara McDermott, Darcy Riggins-Schmidt, and Brendan Sweeney. Our theme music is by Michael Parker. We'll be back with more of The Wild next weekend. Take care of yourselves, and keep your nose to the ground when you're out in nature. You never know what you might find. And keep in touch. Thanks so much for listening. At SoundSide, we bring you news and conversation rooted in the Pacific Northwest. Hi, I'm Libby Denkman. I think of my job hosting SoundSide as, number one, asking tough questions of powerful people, the questions you KUOW listeners want answered. And two, bringing you a daily slice of the fascinating, confounding, and often goofy side of life in Washington State. Join me for SoundSide at noon and 8 p.m. on KUOW or anytime on the SoundSide podcast.